Welcome to the Pladium Podcast. I'm your host, Jonah Bennett. I'm joined, as usual, by Wolf Tyvey and hey. Ash Milton as editors. How's it hey, going, hey. guys? Not bad, not bad. Yeah, it's good. We're also joined by Sea of Ash Tahan this time, who wrote the latest Palladium piece on urban housing politics, which is his forte, having had a long and illustrious career in real He's estate, in his 20s. of course. Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> relatively illustrious career. We'll skip that. We'll skip that. So that, that's going to be basically the discussion for this week. The article is called What No One Wants to Admit About Housing Politics. So we can spend some time digging a little bit deeper into some of the theory around struggles for space, social identity, etc. So, Siavash, let's start on your end. Why don't you give us a little background on yourself? What got you interested in land development and housing politics? How land is a scam? And then we'll have you discuss the article a little bit and Scott Wiener's SB50 bill. Sure. My name is Siavash Tahan. I grew up in Vancouver. Um, and I was always interested in sort of current events, uh, sort of politics and the impact that politics and public policy has on commerce, on commercial developments, on business communities and that kind of stuff. So building from that in school, I studied economics and politics as my uh, combined major and I had a, a, a minor in commerce. And in Vancouver, there's really only like three industries, real estate, mining, sort of the head operations of it, uh, and I guess uh, industries related to the port and port activities. So I I got into real estate after that. And then from there, I got a a feeling of sort of how the public policies surrounding uh, densification and urbanization issues will impact uh, sort of economic development, and I believe that this is very important because the the, the world has been urbanizing at a, at a rapid pace in the last, uh, I would say, maybe three decades, four decades, but really it's a process that has started since at least the Industrial Revolution. Um, yeah, so I guess that's, a, that's where I come from in terms of my understanding of these issues. So... Why don't you then uh, kind of summarize the article a little bit for our audience if they haven't already read it, uh, and then we can start building off some discussion from that. Sure. So my article, uh, I wrote it in the last, uh, I guess, few weeks. It's based on uh, the sort of struggles in the city, especially cities on the west coast of uh, California, I guess, or west coast of the U.S., but it really applies to any attractive global city. Um, where you have a huge migration of people, talent, capital, um, firms starting up and such, yet that migration isn't being managed in the most uh, optimum way. Um, There are resistance to the development of new housing and development of new sort of offices and buildings, uh, but primarily housing, uh, being... uh, so, so the resistance is coming from sort of incumbent groups, so either incumbent homeowners or incumbent renters, uh, long-time tenants in an area, who are scared of change, scared of new people in their neighborhoods. And this is sort of holding back growth. So in my professional world, in my, in my professional life, I see uh, sort of the resistance exemplified by uh, residents in certain areas to new multifamily housing primarily 
rental housing, new condos, whatever it may be. Um, so it was sort of inspired from that. And I know in California, especially, there's a huge housing crisis, um, especially at the lower end where there's a, a homelessness crisis as well. And that has a lot of spin-off negative externalities. Um, urban pathologies is how, uh, how it's described in the article. And it's important to come up with ways to sort of minimize those urban pathologies because urbanization is a trend that is going to continue. There's no end in sight. And we have to get very serious about building cities that are accommodating for as many people as possible, but also still livable. Okay, so in that vein then, you know, the article discussed uh, Democratic State Senator Scott Wiener's SB50 bill, which is basically, as far as I see it, an attempt to build a new coalition to supersede the existing one, which in its current form has essentially frozen housing development in California for some some decades now. And resistance uh, sort of killed the last attempt at, at, a, at a Wiener housing bill. But SB 50 is now at least trying to peel off some part of the old coalition to his new coalition, which is slowly adding more and more members as the, the demand and, and, and necessity for, for housing continually makes itself uh, very obvious and apparent in major cities in California, especially, particularly San Francisco. It's causing uh, a, a lot of businesses to, to move elsewhere, if only for purely economic reasons, um, because a lot of their workers... Um, simply uh, relative to the income they're making cannot afford uh, to to live a reasonable life in, yep. in an urban environment. Like we were saying, like that said in the, the article, like urban living to its fullest extent in many major cities is now almost an unreachable luxury good. Yeah, yeah that's well, why it's a scale-up city, right? Get big, get out to somewhere you can actually have a family. Right, and, and then... Um... Just following on, like, companies having to move. We've got uh, Stripe recently basically abandoned SF. I, I think they went to just South Yeah, San not Francisco. too far. Not, not too, too far, far, but, like, SF itself, they just they, they decided to get out. That was an interesting choice. Um, and, and the general zeitgeist right now in, in SF is, like, yeah, this place is, is, is uh, spent, like, the... Obviously, the housing crisis isn't, isn't the only problem. You have the, the public disorder issues as well. But um, basically, like, the, the costs are getting so high and, and, and the quality of life sort of not matching that, that, um, you know, despite this city being in a really good position uh, network value-wise, it's actually kind of uh, losing its position and, and people are, are getting to be really down on it. And so, it, like, this is a very serious issue. This is this is like uh, almost like a, a matter of, of national security. If you want to be if you want to be very serious about it, like you know, if if America has an extremely powerful good city where a lot of value is created, um, a lot of really smart people are coming to kind of work on big projects that are of sort of high importance to the economy, the strategic position of the country, et cetera. Um, and then, and then you're not building any houses for those people. Um, 
and and so like they're not actually making any money they're not being really able to survive they're not having a good quality of life well that that's like a it's pretty serious like you you might sort of uh kill kill the thing like this is the issue is big enough it's not just some um it's not just some like minor concern it's the kind of thing that like this could this could kill the dynamism of some of the most important cities in america i mean yeah like looking at san francisco specifically i think last year an infectious disease expert uh looked at the relationship between um, health conditions and uh, extreme poverty and, and found that uh, San Francisco, at least as far as its streets are concerned, is com- comparable to some of the dirtiest slums out there. I think one of the quotes here is, uh, the contamination is much greater than communities in Brazil or, or Kenya or India. And uh, for... Uh, a, a major economic metropolis that's pretty damning, especially in America. Yeah, so these are the urban pathologies that, that we were summarizing in the article, and these need to be minimized, and the best way to minimize them is to really embark on a massive housing building project. And I know many people would say urban areas are embarking on such a thing, but it's it's really not the scale that is required. I mean, uh, the senator that I profile in the piece, Scott Weiner. Uh, has a pinned tweet on his uh, account about how California back in the 1960s, I believe, with a much smaller population base, was building 300,000 homes per year. And now with a much larger population base, almost two times more people, it's only producing 80,000 homes per year. So that gap, that undersupply, you could call it, will translate into much higher prices for both commercial and for residential, but primarily for residential. And those higher prices uh, result in a a gentrification and a slumification in certain areas happening simultaneously. And these are the kinds of problems that sort of need to be minimized, and they can be minimized by embarking on much greater supply-oriented policies um, that allow housing development to proceed in a more liberal fashion, I would say. Uh, and these pro- uh, these uh, sort of supply-oriented policies are being frustrated by homeowner, particularly, opposition. These homeowners are known as NIMBYs, not in my backyard. Uh, that's just one of their acronyms. There's also uh, other acronyms that, that they can go by. Banana, build absolutely nothing near anything. Um, so, so, so these groups f- are fearful of change. And my piece tries to sort of... Uh, Accept their fears as as legitimate, but also come up with a a theory as to why their fears need to be addressed, but also in the end their that class and that resentment that they have against new development and new neighbors will eventually be crushed uh, by the coalition that Scott Weiner has been uh, assembling. I would quibble with that a little bit. Um, so, yeah, we in the piece. Uh, you, you do a good job kind of articulating the concerns of the NIMBYs and so on. Um, and then it's obvious that kind of which way the wind is blowing. Uh, it, it looks like the wind is blowing towards much more development-oriented things. All the smartest people are realizing, okay, this is a serious issue. We have to address it. Uh, so something's going to be done. However, um, if you do not, in fact, address the concerns of these people... Um, 
they're just going to fight kind of tooth and nail every step along the way. And you, like, you know, to, not to dramatize things a little bit too much, but, but like, imagine trying to fight like a kind of brutal guerrilla war against, against like, you know, a population that just does not want the thing you are trying to impose. Um, as long as you have, as long as you have these people who are, um, you know, have the interests that they have and, and basically are not convinced. But if you ask, if you ask the gorillas what they're fighting for, they'll tell you that it's the, uh, heritage laundromat down right, the street. Right, of course. <laughs> um, but like, if you don't actually address it, their- they always say parking primarily, they always are worried that new neighbors yeah, is yeah. parking, but the real concerns, of course, is, is, yeah, <laughs> but the real concern that they have, though, which is unsaid, and it, I try to do a good job of, of uh, sort of making that more explicit in the piece, is that their concern is that the new neighbors will cause effectively what what can be called a cultural replacement or cultural genocide. For example, very uh, so, so some tenants unions, for example, in California and also in Vancouver, where I live, uh, use this word, a cultural genocide, a greenwashing campaign. They say that these big developers are engaging in sort of a genocide or a, a social re- class replacement in a certain neighborhood. Primarily, this is referred to in, in, in Chinatowns that are centrally located in good parts of cities. However, they have generally been uh, more depressed in terms of real estate prices. But now, th- due to, uh, I guess, uh, a sort of a back-to-the-city la- uh, back movement that has been happening over the last 15, 20 years especially, uh, those Chinatowns are becoming more um, attractive to new young families and such, uh, especially families who are not Chinese and they don't have uh, relationships with the, with the currently existing Chinese community in those Chinatowns. So sort of tenants' unions and... and uh, I guess some homeowners in those communities are worried that this new influx of people will just change the culture. And they do use those kinds of phrasing. This is a cultural genocide. So that's interesting to me because uh, this is a kind of politics that we don't actually see very much, uh, at least in the U.S., Canada, um, uh, not often, I think, in Western Europe either. There's In the liberal democratic framework, there's kind of this basic assumption that uh, everyone's interests, it's not to say that everyone wins, but ultimately everyone at least has to be accommodated somehow. And even if you lose a particular battle, um, you know, say on one policy issue, well, maybe we'll find some way to compensate on some other policy issue. This is a very political statement in the sense that uh, it's an awareness that in a political battle, sometimes someone can just lose and like be defeated. And in the case of a community or a neighborhood, it becomes very visceral because, you know, it, it, if you're just arguing over a parking lot or something or, or over a new tower, uh, there's deals that can be made. But if your entire neighborhood is just gone and the kind of cultural and social norms that you'd built there disappear under the sheer weight of... Uh, you know, tech bros or whoever it is moving in with new housing, there's not really an accommodation to be met there. Um, it's like, okay, maybe you can build a suburb somewhere else or whatever. But the the, the key sense of like your community has just been removed uh, is is really like hard to overcome. There's not a deal you can make very easily 
with that. So that makes this a very political battle in a way that we don't usually see. Yeah, exactly. So there are some accommodations that can be made. So for example, developers in some of these um, sort of uh, Chinatowns or sort of historically black areas do bring uh, sort of offers of social housing that they will build in tandem with uh, sort of the, the market housing that is actually profitable for them. And that helps to retain at least uh, in a secure manner some segment of the uh, sort of incumbent population, the original population of an area. And that makes it more palatable for some people. So for example, there was a development in Vancouver, in the Chinatown of Vancouver, that was actually a parking lot. And the developer had the right to, to build a four-story, I believe, four-story market tower or not it's not i mean i don't know if you can call four stories a tower but a market development uh that was four stories tall uh but they wanted to build i believe eight stories in the end so they were looking to get rezoning approval they didn't get it because the community chinatown uh tenants unions uh various left-wing agitators i guess rallied together and tried to stop that redevelopment project the developer offered to give one whole floor of those uh, four extra floors they were asking for, over to over to a uh, seniors housing, a Chinese seniors housing community, and allow them to put uh, sort of uh, cost burdened or low income seniors um, in the community into sort of lower, uh, sorry, into uh, the social housing on the lower floors of that. Uh, proposed development. In any case, that whole project got defeated and uh, they didn't get the uh, request, their request eight floors, so they're just going to go ahead and build four floors uh, of all market. So in some ways, those NIMBYs and those um, sort of uh, poverty, anti-poverty activists, Chinese activists in the Chinatown, they lost everything because now they're not even going to get that one floor of social housing. But in, in terms of your point, Ash, there are ways that you can accommodate some of this but yes, if you we have seven floors of tech bros or whatever, and one floor preserving the old demographic of a community. You're you're kind of trying to lower the temperature on the battle. Uh, you know, you the, the offer pretty much has to be yes, your community will survive to some threshold that is acceptable to you. Yeah, well, here, uh, if you yeah, can't and, do that, and, you can't solve wait, 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 the battle. Wait, wait. Here, here's what I find often uh, gets obscured when when Yimbies are trying to talk to who we you know, mentioned in the article are referred to often as, as FIMBIs, public housing in my backyard. And it, it is these, whether DSA types, anti-poverty activists, housing activists, minorities, longtime community members, etc. cetera. Um, uh, they often kind of distrust the YIMBYs because they'll say, well, you know, there will be still some, some public housing. Don't worry, market-oriented approaches will, will fix all of your concerns. Uh, and, and, and just like stop the protest, let the development go through. And what they're not addressing is the fact that, okay, maybe there will be some public housing built to kind of mollify a bit of the concerns. But the reality is these Yimbis are going to call the cops on the drum circle that's been there for like 30 years. Like that's just, the, the, the problem is, is that some cultural items cannot coexist in finite space. Yeah, and, and this is, like, um, we don't want to sort of, like, abstract this out to the point that the problem looks completely fatalistic. It's like, oh, yeah, there's there's sort of just no way to deal with the fact that you've got an incumbent community 
and we need to build more housing and building more housing destroys that community. So I guess there's no way out. But if you look closer, the, there's the, the more specific issue is what kind of social fabric is there in that neighborhood? And sort of like, are the people moving in the type who are going to integrate into that social fabric and be people that the people who are there already can socialize with? Or are they people, um, is it just like basically from the perspective of the incumbent and invasion? So I've, and, I've, I've talked to a bunch of people in Detroit on this issue. And, and from their perspective, uh, you know, Detroit is kind of a, a up and coming, you know, hipster location. But they're also incredibly concerned with um, maintaining Detroit's culture and, and emphasizing it to all new entrants. And they say, what I hear from them, is that they're doing a decent job at it. But the rate of entrance uh, is currently too high, and a lot of these people are simply not interested in participating. You know, they, you know, maybe you'll get about ten percent of new entrants to the community interested in participating, but then you have something like ninety percent, and at that point, uh, acculturation is very difficult because um, essentially this ninety percent has their own sort of like ways of being that it's just totally different a different kind of social fabric yeah that doesn't interact with the other social fabric or or encroaches on it in some way yeah and the network effects are such that like if you have a if you have like a, a social fabric that used to be kind of relatively exclusive in a territory and then suddenly is a minority in that territory that social fabric is is not going to survive it's 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 gone like there's there's no uh, it just, it's just the way that the network effects end up working. I know. So you basically have, have a, a few very excited residents who want to introduce Detroit culture to their new neighbors. And they'll say, hey, you know, we're known for, for Detroit techno. Here are all our hip hop artists. Here's uh, the local art galleries, the art scene going on. A lot is being produced in Detroit. You know, why don't you come out and, and hang out and, and, and here, here, you know, we'll welcome you into the neighborhood. Um, some people take them up that, uh, take them up on that. Uh, but often there's, you know, people don't always stick with it or people are not interested at all. Right. Yeah. So this, this like, to get, to get to like, one of the questions that I think is useful here is like, people are often caricaturing the NIMBYs or, or yeah, the NIMBYs as being, you know, afraid of change or just against all development or something. But I think it's worth asking the question, what kind of development would those people be okay with if they could actually, like, if you could sort of just imagine a kind of development that they would actually like, um, that, that sort of can be a revealing thing. And I think, are you talking about NIMBYs right now or NIMBYs? NIMBYs. Like, okay. Cause we were talking about FIMBYs. Okay. But I, I'm, well, we're talking about just generally people who are incumbent in the community and yes. they have, they're attached to some particular social fabric and they're therefore against change that isn't going to be good for them. Right. And that, and, that encompasses I'll, both FIMBYs and NIMBYs. And I'll note that one of the key differences between NIMBYs and FIMBYs is often NIMBYs are resourced enough to be able to pick up and move to another location and use income as a cultural Yeah, mode. yeah. So, Whereas so, FIMBYs often have to just take the loss. Yeah, but but getting back to the question is like what what kind of development would this person uh, or these people be interested in? I and like when I do the thought experiment, it's like oh well, what if the people moving into the neighborhood were just like more people, more or less socially like the people who are already there, 
And then it's like, okay, there's just more neighbors now, I guess. It, and and it, it, you realize like, oh, well, that's the problem isn't just new people that you don't know coming in. It's new people who have a different way of life, right? And so like, this is where you start to run into like the kind of ontology that we use to talk about these things and to, to manage these things is because like right now, there's no first class way to talk about like, oh, well, those people are different from us and like, we don't want them here. Like that, that's not the kind of thing that, that people like to hear these days. And so that whole concern, which is, I think, actually the the root concern of the whole, like all of these issues, it just kind of like goes unsaid. And like, this is kind of why the article had that title. It's like, what is what are people not saying about this? Well, it's because what they're not saying is like, th this is about are these like our kind of people or some other kind of people who are basically invaders? And um, and that can be on like many, many different dimensions. That word invader, that's exactly what many NIMBYs and f even some FIMBYs use. They, they right. see it as, a, as, a, as, an, as an alien sort of imposition on their... I think, um, if I can just jump in here, we're, we're kind of discussing both the FIMBYs and the NIMBYs here. Uh, I don't know if we defined it earlier, but FIMBYs would then be uh, public housing in my backyard. Uh, and one of the things that gets brought up in this piece is the role of the FIMBYs uh, in this kind of coalition. Uh, historically, they've often had some aligned interests with the NIMBYs. Uh, if we're classifying NIMBYs here as, again, people who have some access to resources, income, property, they're a voter block, etc. FIMBYs are less politically powerful. But, uh, you know, they have kind of a, a street presence. They have neighborhoods um, that, you know, where, where they're kind of culturally integrated. There's a community there. One of the things that gets brought up is that the, the FIMBYs have begun to a degree to split off from their NIMBY counterparts. Um, so the Wieners Bill, for example, seems to use promises of things like affordable housing um, to try and convince some of the FIMBYs that the benefits to them from the increased housing, increased supply will be substantive enough or substantial enough, rather. Um, that they can actually now join the sort of YIMBY coalition. So I, I think it might be worth um, delving into that a little bit because it, uh, it it shows kind of what kinds of deals are actually possible to make there. And it gets us a little into the nature of the YIMBY coalition as well, which is a big part of the piece here. Yeah, so one of the things I actually didn't uh, comment on too much in the article was the fact that in many cases, FIMBYs are not good faith actors themselves. They're actually NIMBYs using an excuse that is allowable to say like, oh, I, oh, I will only accept new development if it's uh, public housing because they know public housing will not be built in an area. So they use that excuse and they hide behind the, the, the claim that they care about public housing and affordability, but they actually just don't want any new housing. So, so the, the, even amongst the FIMBYs, a, a good portion of them are actually just NIMBYs in disguise. They're not, they're not, the concern trolling, I guess, is the phrase for it. Um, they, they pretend to care about the affordability and such, but they don't actually care about the affordability. They just don't want any aliens on their territory. There are um, differences between NIMBYs and FIMBYs across West Coast cities. Like, I'm, out, I'm under the impression that there are more genuine FIMBYs in places like um san francisco and los angeles and fewer in vancouver 
That's definitely correct. So the Vancouver Fimbies are also, uh, a lot of them are sort of upper middle class or even just outright wealthy individuals who own single family homes, even in very good areas uh, of, of Vancouver, um, Shaughnessy, I guess would be some of it. And they pretend that they care about social housing but they know social housing is, is economically impossible and that no level of government is really going to put up the billions of dollars needed for social housing. So they they hide under that banner. It seems like you can test this by, like, if if someone is actually a member of the... Or if you have a community that's actually FIMBY in nature, then theoretically uh, there should be some degree of social housing that can be guaranteed uh where a deal can be made if you're in a situation where uh it turns out after like rounds and rounds of fruitless negotiation no amount of social housing ever seems to be enough then maybe uh you're dealing with one of these kind of like nimby operations uh that you're describing yeah you definitely nailed it so back to the example i gave in uh earlier this uh this recording uh the Chinatown proposal where one whole floor of totally new housing just for low-income Chinese seniors who are in the community currently, people's grandmas and such, was being offered by the developer in exchange for four stories extra on top of the four stories. So this is, first of all, a modest development. Eight stories is nothing. It's not like a giant tower on a, on a lot that wasn't anything before. It's an empty parking lot. Um, it's actually a parking lot near the club district. So there's it's, it's actually kind of bad place it's not a good place it's like usually fights happen around this parking lot um uh, so it's 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 not displacing anyone yet the tenants union and certain factions of the um sort of chinatown resistance to this developer didn't accept a whole free floor of uh of social housing for senior citizens so you know that their uh, fimbyism was concern trolling. It was lies. They don't care about that stuff. They just didn't want any new development. They would rather not have one floor of social housing for seniors uh, if it means that they don't get seven floors of new neighbors who they don't like. Uh, I think it might be useful here to start going more into the Yimby side of this equation. Because uh, I think in a lot of, you know, th this topic has been discussed a lot, um, you know, City Lab, uh, a lot of different places have discussed this idea of the, a new kind of young, uh, maybe sort of tech adjacent UMB coalition uh, that, that sort of unified um, and then people who are anti-UMB kind of tend to paint them as homogeneously, uh, you know, people who just want to displace local communities and gentrifiers. But the the Yimby coalition that gets described in this piece is pretty different and heterogeneous and actually um, a, a coalition of interests, some more entrenched and powerful and some less so. Um, so, Siavash, if you want to maybe delve into that, I think that's probably pretty useful for uh, people listening, uh, especially if they haven't read the piece yet. Yeah, for sure. So, of course, there is the, the, the face of the Yimby movement, of course, is... Uh, a lot of uh, younger people, younger families, people who are uh, either migrants from the uh, outer parts of a city or international and the acronym, uh, immigrants. Uh, yes, in my backyard. Uh, they are. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their. That's their acronym. Yes, in my backyard. So, uh, they are uh, sort of the productive class in, in in a sense. They they work hard. They want to raise their families. They're generally law abiding. 
um, and they're sort of new citizens that want to live in a certain area. They are joined as well um, by uh, a certain faction of developers who wish to uh, orient themselves more towards urban housing, transit-oriented housing, that kind of housing, rather than just building suburban land, uh, tract housing. Uh, so, so that coalition is coming together, and to really think about it, that coalition can be expanded even more, and Scott Wiener has done that in California. He's expanded it to include trades unions, um, and that makes sense because trade unions will be employed as carpenters, boilermakers, etc., in the construction of new housing. He's expanded it more to include um, environmentalists because uh, urban housing, denser neighborhoods are actually better for the environment. Um, because they, they require less uh, resources for transportation, uh, particularly meaning that they limit the amount of private automobile use and ownership as well. Uh, so the, a broad coalition can be brought together and should be brought together on this YIMBY side, on this pro-densification side. And I'm quite confident that this coalition will win because it's, it's, it's got what is needed to win in democratic politics, which is a, a activist base uh, that is politically palatable and, and, and presentable, as well as uh, networks of money and actual institutional power that can sort of sponsor. So let me, let me quibble again with the word win. I think be politically dominant is perfectly reasonable. However, again, as long as you have a bunch of people with the interests to resist and a bunch of mechanisms by which they can resist, um, you're going to get resistance and I think it's going to be protracted and it's going to just drag out and, and continue to slow the process down despite that coalition being dominant. So one example of this, I think, is uh, not something that's happened yet, but something that I would predict is um, in the SB 50 bill, part of the proposal is like, okay, anywhere near a transit station, um, you have to you have to sort of allow municipalities have to allow apartment buildings um so this just shifts it's like okay well then then california has has sort of closed the, the state of california has closed that issue uh which is like the individual resistance against the individual um apartment buildings and just shifted that into resistance to transit right um so like the the actual people trying to fight back have not gone away or had their power broken or anything. They still have, uh, you know, all the interests they have. They're just going to use a different set of mechanisms to um, to try to block the stuff that they don't want. So, yeah, I, I, I just want to, like, have that clarification that, like, I, I would expect. Well, maybe you can disagree with me on this, but like I would expect it would be moving zoning issues out of the hands of municipal governments uh, and put it into the hands of the state government or even a national government. And Japan actually has this currently. Yeah, so zoning issues can be just put up into the hands of uh, more senior governments where they're less likely to be captured because the senior governments have so much uh, other things on their plate as well. So they're less likely to be captured by sort of uh, localized resistance because they have so national elections or provincial elections or state elections have so many other issues on yeah, the ballot. Yeah. They, they can't be captured by some local actor. So that that's a really good um, 
example of something that I think would be more uh, more effective, I guess. And and it plays out in in the results. If you look at all the big cities in the world, uh, Tokyo builds, uh, I think, some of the most some of the like highest levels of of new housing and has the lowest levels of rent. So um, interesting data point. Yeah, and to be really honest, what the NIMBYs are trying to do is 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 really hard, actually, to be honest. They, they can only succeed with the amount of institutional backing that they have been able to capture through their local activism. What they're trying to do is stop people from making um, best use out of their privately owned property. Like, that's a hard thing to do. How, like, how am I going to stop you from putting an extra duplex in your house or putting a, a granny suite in your in your back lane it's really hard for me to do that i have to do a lot of scheming i have to be working in these panels and like urban design panels it's not easy for me to stop you from doing that and for example seattle has simply defeated the nimby movement by allowing any uh sort of uh, lot any residential zone lot to have a duplex on it that's just like their residential zoning now for single family lot. It allows duplexes. So that that is a, an immediate defeat of NIMBYs right there because you allow extra housing by right. No rezoning needed. Yeah, yeah. So none of this lot by lot rezoning. It strikes me that when you start getting to these interesting discussions about um, centralizing uh, zoning authorities to state levels, to national levels, um it actually becomes possible now because in, in in every country you have cities that are the big metropolises. You have like the the secondary cities uh, that are a little more livable, and then you have the ones that are basically just kind of big towns. Uh, you know, maybe a million people, like a bigger than town, but not really a major city. And once it's if we imagine, for example, that there is actually just a strong trade off between. Uh, economic productivity, having the influx of workers and, and deregulated housing, etc., and this kind of livability in community, it actually I don't would think theoretically that's true, by the way. well, uh, sure, but but and, and we can get into that as well. But theoretically, it becomes possible then that you could tier cities. So I think China has a version of this, for example, tier one, two, and three cities um, that are basically taken as sort of different units when it comes to overall national strategy. You could, for example, have cities that are just basically, you know, maybe the places like the Bay Area or New York. These are at the economic engines. These are the powerhouses. We are just going to run these for maximum productivity. Other places, uh, you know, maybe Portland or Salt Lake uh, or or Georgia, um, or, sorry, not, not Georgia, Atlanta. Um, these we will take then as another tier of city where we will basically permit more regulation in the interests of having this be kind of a more living city. Now, there's a bunch of trade-offs that result from that, but... Everyone has um, to move around all the time. People yeah, have to dude. move around, but people already move around. I sort of yeah. want to put this out there just as an example of how um, once you start looking at kind of the network of cities as a collective national asset that should be properly managed, you immediately start having different trade-offs and questions than when, you know, each city is just kind of a standalone having to make these kinds of decisions. 
Yeah, so I agree with the idea of like specializing cities by some like by some kind of higher level logic. That seems like a good idea. And that already kind of happens, right? Like you have LA goes into entertainment and aerospace. SF seems to be mostly tech these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what else. And a lot of did, that here. did come from federal priorities, right? Uh, things yeah. were located in certain cities for political reasons. Right. And and but but like on the run a city for kind of maximum productivity never mind livability i think i i i think that's like misguided i think you end up actually just causing a lot of trouble with that like if you start treating your cities as oil rigs uh which is unfortunately what sf is right now sf is an oil rig or a gold rush town hmm. and and has all the social pathologies as uh, of such a thing that's a good comparison um, actually yeah and and like i don't think cities should be oil rigs cities should be actual communities and and they just I think they actually just work a lot better if they are if you do prioritize making it an actual community, and I don't think the trade off is as strong as um, as you might expect, and I don't think I think it could be even less strong. I think the like more synergy between productivity and community under under sort of like different conceptual models. So first of all, like okay, build a lot more housing. Um, if you build the right kind of housing that isn't just like, you know, pods in giant hive towers, um, that, yeah, yeah. If you, if you build something other than pods and hive tabs, hive towers, um, then like more housing makes rent go down. The housing is still of good quality and it's still possible to like have a family in the city, right? Um, social fabric issues aside. So then there's the whole social fabric issue. The social fabric issue seems to me, um, I know, I don't know what kind of mechanism would work or what kind of mechanism would be acceptable politically or whatever. Maybe you need a lot more political muscle to actually do something like this, but imagine a social mechanism where different neighborhoods could have some kind of, um, like social zoning in, in some way where like there was explicit, handling in the mechanisms for like okay this neighborhood has this vibe that neighborhood has that vibe and like we we aren't just gonna like run run over that with like just sort of mass uh influx of of people from elsewhere in the country yeah so toronto actually has something a a little like this not in terms of um uh, keeping development but but the neighborhood system here um does take uh i don't know all the facets of it but you know there are characters to different neighborhoods uh in the city and each one you know when you especially when anything is being built that has like government funding behind it i mean they're going to be located in certain places uh and the result is that you travel to different parts of the city uh, you can go to like uh, Little Italy or Greek Town or the Annex, which is right by the university, and they will actually feel different, uh, despite the fact that the city is one of North America's big hubs. Yeah. So this think, is a way that you can reconcile these things. So, so that I mean, it's certainly the case that different neighborhoods are going to feel different. I guess the question is, can you kind of preserve? If, if a neighborhood has a good thing going on, can you preserve that while doing high levels of development? And I think if you actually just try and actually pay attention to that issue and actually empower uh, somebody to who, with the right incentives to actually 
try to do that. I think you can. And I think we're just not doing that right now. And that, that kind of like makes the trade-off between development and livability worse than it really has to be. So you can do these kinds of things. And I try to touch the touch on this in the latter part of my piece with things like covenants. So you have covenants for uh, certain strata properties in Vancouver for sure. And I would assume in other cities as well, where the, for example, this is a seniors community. No one under 55 can be on title and that's totally legal. And you know what actually happens? Those units in those buildings or those townhouse complexes are significantly cheaper. They're significantly cheaper because they exclude explicitly uh, families with young children and they exclude specifically young adults. So they become more livable for the old people that live there. And again, this is a private uh, market housing. This is not social housing or any sort of special seniors residence, just regular apartments and townhouse complexes in Vancouver and the uh, surrounding suburbs. And yeah, they, they just through the covenant, they restrict people from being uh, over, uh, sorry, under 55. And that keeps quiet, the peace and quiet that older people really value. So that's their livability. They, there's another way you could also do a similar thing where you exclude the ability to rent your unit. And that immediately uh, takes out tenants from your community. So there are co-ops and strata properties in Vancouver again and the surrounding suburbs where the, uh, the strata corporation or the co-op board has not allowed anyone to rent a unit. So everyone as a resident there is an owner and that helps build a little bit more of a community vibe. So I, I think there's something like the general idea of having mechanisms whereby you can like change who's actually allowed to be there. I think there's potential there, but like the particular types of restrictions that often get proposed where it's like, we're going to kind of like draw this really weird, unnatural cross section through society um, that wouldn't exist in any organic community and and like exclude on that basis like you know no renters no young people uh for example that that feels like well look it, oh, it that's like a really for, weird way to do you know, it seniors on a on a fixed income if if you are limited in the sorts of restrictions you can you can have and in that sense like you're making the best of an already kind of rough situation. Yeah, well, but but like the, the point is like the the things the the restrictions that that the NIMBYs actually want, and that that actually kind of if you just look at this from fifty thousand feet, like the things that actually make sense are like okay, we the different communities have different social fabrics, and but like you should be able to preserve the character of a community um, by se selective influx. Um, and controlled growth without like that community ceasing to actually be an organic community with like all ages, all social classes, etc. Right. Like it, there's no reason that uh, that it has to be sort of drawn on such arbitrary lines. But on, on the on the um, price issue, I think that's an interesting kind of little theoretical point to go into is like, why does the price go down? So the obvious one is while you have restricted demand now, there's fewer people competing for the same resource, the price is going to go down. Another aspect that, that sort of occurs to me is a lot of the immense prices in housing, um, like the competition for, for, for housing prices and, and like 
again, the, the, the reason that NIMBYs like to keep the prices high is, is, is the prices are uh, an exclusionary mechanism, right? Like if you can exclude everyone who can't pay a certain amount, um, well, generally you're going to get a more filtered crowd, right? And, and, and that, that like puts, um, perhaps not directly, but there's a, there's an upward pressure on housing prices because of the fact that housing prices is the only way you're allowed to exclude people. Um, except like all this backroom NIMBY stuff that, that is not kind of formalized at all, but it's one of the few mechanisms for actually excluding people is, is this price thing. And of course the downside of, of using, uh, prices as, as one of your main mechanisms of, of exclusion is that only the people at the top of the economic pyramid have access to exclusive communities, which doesn't seem like a good way to run uh, run sort of the overall social community. Yeah, well, one of the big problems historically with uh, the way these neighborhoods worked, right, was that the the restriction of entry also basically restricted production uh, and economic growth, meaning that the result was certain communities remain poor. So we mentioned like the redlining problem uh, in, in the article where like black neighborhoods did basically people would not develop there uh, in the way they would in other neighborhoods. And so you end up either, you know, you have to like di directly invest somehow or force investment uh, or you have some kind of redistribution or essentially certain neighborhoods get left behind. And all of those are like unstable in different ways. Even in some cases where people in, in certain neighborhoods would sort of try to locally develop, uh, this, that this then gets seen as a political threat because now it's happening outside of the institutional structures. So like a, a very politically famous version of this, and this is mentioned in the article, is the Free Breakfast for Children program. So this was run by like the Black Panthers uh, in black neighborhoods during their uh, the, the late 60s, early 70s, I believe it was. And, you know, it was filling this necessary gap. Uh, so like thousands of uh, children were getting served through this program. But because it was being run by the Black Panthers, who are a politically radical organization, federal authorities uh, pretty much persecuted, uh, you know, the, 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 they tried to discredit the program, they persecuted the organization, and it eventually fell apart. And so because of that economic uh, instability and inequality, even localized efforts to build up a neighborhood that was essentially viewed by authorities as an outside neighborhood couldn't really be trusted. And you end up in this vicious cycle where um, there's almost no good solution. Like the, the neighborhood doesn't develop, but there's no really safe mechanism for it to develop that's politically palatable to all sides. And uh, part of the drive to break up things like covenant restrictions was basically the, you know, the prioritizing of access to economic growth over these kind of older, you know, communitarian standards uh, and these older laws like segregation, which kept some people poor. And so the sticky situation you get into, essentially, and the reason why it seems very difficult to me uh, that, that, you know, you can have some kind of weird updated version of covenant laws that are acceptable to Yimbis is that it actually seems to undermine the fundamental goal of the Yimbi coalition, which is access to housing for the productive classes. 
uh, see of us. I mean, I'd be interested in your comment on this because uh, th- that would seem like a very difficult sell to the people who would most need to provide alternatives for having like stable communities. So I'm not exactly sure what the question is. Uh, the question there is like these these restrictive measures such as covenants, which were historically used. Um, like how, what restriction can be really sold to the Yimbi coalition that isn't actually a trade-off from their primary goal, which is greater access to housing? Or is it just a trade-off? Is, for example, saying no tenants a trade-off that is just acceptable to Yimbis in order to gain the political uh, measures necessary to have pro-housing development well, there, policies? Well, there's still the demand diversion thing, right? Like you're building a bunch of... Ha- Let's say you build a bunch of housing that only some people can use. It still diverts demand from the other areas, right? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, but I, I, I'm thinking of this more in terms of, um, you know... Is, is there some way we're having uh, no tenant owner only housing? Um, like, can this be sold by the Yimbies as sort of we're pro housing, but in a communitarian sense, pro housing for communities? But no tenant, no tenant isn't the actual thing. It's not like oh, anyone who rents is like the wrong thing. Like that's that's no, not no, no, actually I, what exactly. they're trying to. It, it, it's to a pricing. Accomplish. It's a pricing thing, right? It, well, it, it's it's a just an, it's another one of these fake excuses, right? And so, I, at least for the sake of clarity, let's let's go towards like the the actual kind of uh, issue at hand. I think, which is which is like. Can you socialize with these people? So the no tenant thing or the no children or no under 55 thing is a non-market type of covenant uh, that is introduced that brings down housing prices, increases economic sort of access to housing, but uh, stratifies that by certain identity category. Children out, young adults out, couples out, uh, young couples out, young families out. Uh, poor people out um, for the tenant thing, but people who are going to be like more rooted in the community, owner residents in, seniors who have um, sort of a, a lower noise profile in. So you can come up with a lot of these types of uh, uh, covenants, and I think it, it wouldn't be as hard to sell. It's just that because of the legacy of these covenants for. Um, in terms of how they were used in the U.S. for particularly racial segregation, it seems like it's uh, uncouth or, I guess, sort of like not politically palatable to talk in this in this way specifically. But you can s- say things like, "This is a family-friendly neighborhood only. This is a children's children's oriented neighborhood. We have uh, we're, we're closer to the schools. We're going to build family housing in this area. This is a if you if you." Uh, give a little identity descriptions to these neighborhoods as you're building them, you can sort of work your way towards a greater housing supply for the many different factions in the Yimby Coalition uh, in a way that sort of respects the concerns of the incumbent people. The question then, I guess, is uh, are there historical examples of like NIMBY classes or parts of NIMBY classes in certain cities which give way politically as a result of a strategy like that? Uh, Or, you know, is this more of a way to kind of 
secure or like make sure that the same community concerns don't repeat themselves in future for the yimbies that will be moving in uh i guess i don't know if that this has worked in other places yet uh i don't know but i think it can work i mean it works on a micro more micro scale and building by building um and it's acceptable in terms of uh, legal challenges i guess and uh but my main concern and the reason why i wrote this article is that cities are important they need to grow so i'm not interested in any sort of uh debates about oh we need to limit the size of cities it's a it's a positive good that people want to move to cities because there's more capital more uh sort of networks there more jobs there higher productivity there so i want uh housing development to increase and i'm not particularly worried about um preserving or locking in a certain uh, demographic in a certain area, I don't think that is a very legitimate argument because there is a lot of uh, positive social benefits that come from greater density in an area. I just, I'm trying to figure out how to make it palatable for NIMBYs to accept this and to, I guess, sur surrender resistance, make their resistance futile in a way. Yeah, so this, this is something that does have to be emphasized we've been focusing kind of on steel manning the NIMBY case or, or like trying to understand it or empathize with it and so on. Um, but like, yeah, the major issue is like, look, the, man. The, the rents are, the rents are out of control because of, because of like serious. Yeah. Like the, the, the development is, is like not happening and it really needs to be happening. Um, Sort of another another little argument I'll throw at the wall, steel manning the NIMBY case, um, is basically we can't trust the architects. Um, the architects are going to tear down like nice, beautiful pre-war buildings and build like soulless plastic boxes. And I think that's like a large, uh, a large component of the resistance as well. So like... And I wonder how much if you just like get rid of all those other little like nonsense concerns, like the fact that architects can't build nice buildings these days, um, whether whether that would like basically like make a lot of or how much of the issue would that make go away? Like like how much actually is this like relatively intractable or like currently kind of intractable community character issue and how much of it is just stuff like look all the all the new buildings are ugly and the night the old buildings that they're going to tear down are nice um and i i would be curious to hear your guys' thoughts um because like that's certainly something i see is the pre-war buildings actually look nice and those are the ones that command high prices and people actually want to live in and the stuff they build are like the, the most soulless things with like literally just sheer plastic siding uh, and, and uh, like, I, I can see why people would just be opposed to development on purely aesthetic grounds, uh, just purely because we just can't build nice things. So I can think of a counterexample here, um, which is Berlin. Uh, and so after, uh, the German Do reunification, basically, hmm? Do they have good architects? Well, no, no, no. So, uh, after reunification, right? So Berlin had been split in two. And East Berlin got got communist housing, right? It, it got this functional big blocks. I, I've been to Berlin. I, I used to joke, uh, you know, when I was walking home 
uh, to the place I was staying there, you know, and, and I'd have to like use the bathroom or something. And I would get back to, uh, you know, the building before mine. I was like, oh, I'm nearly there. And I'd be walking beside this big box. And five minutes later, I'd still be beside next to the building before mine. Uh, you know, it's not aesthetically pleasing housing, but Berlin is nonetheless a world city. And people moved there, not just from around Germany, but London especially. Uh, there was a large influx of Londoners there. Um, people from all over the world are in Berlin. Now, people moved there because the housing was cheaper. Uh, and it still is, uh, you know, in, in terms of world cities and partially because of, you know, various housing laws that Berlin does have, housing remains cheaper there than in other places. But it's also known as having like a very communitarian vibe. It's a place people want to live. And uh, when they live there, they often feel, you know, like there is a, a sort of cosmopolitan but local character and culture to the city. You know, it's not like it, it's not like the, the, the point I want to make here is that um, when it comes to things like uh, new housing being ugly, I, th I think that this is something like when a community already exists and then it gets disrupted by housing that's perceived as ugly or just is ugly. This is undesirable. But um, there's, uh, th there's a counterpart here where people are very adaptable and they will pretty much make communities in, in anything that is at hand. And so... Uh, I, I don't really think you can just build ugly, like, you know, lots of ugly but plentiful housing in, in, a, in a city people think is nice and they're going to be okay with it. I think you do have well, to take it. The city won't still be nice. Well, so, so the, the, the response here then is that uh, people have a fairly high threshold for pain in cities. Yeah, well, or, or, or like alternately phrased, like the, the material importance of of like low rents or whatever can over override the aesthetics in retrospect. Right. Low rents I, in I, a city that's equivalent in like its global status. Yeah. And, 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 but, but like, I guess the thing I was actually trying to get at was not sort of in retrospect in, in from like a technocratic point of view, which, which are the factors that actually matter more. What I'm getting at is like, I, though I do think aesthetics really matter. Um, the more what I'm getting at is just like sources of resistance, because when when you're talking about sources of resistance, the upside of like you know lower rent, uh, larger community, more opportunities, etc. Those are hard to concretely imagine. But like that ugly plastic thing that they built a few blocks down, and now they're talking about building another one on your block. Like that that's like a very viscerally understandable negative. Um, just just a point I want to make. A lot of the reason why some of the new housing, especially some of the uh, um, uh, new housing in California, especially urban uh, sort of public housing type things, are ugly, is actually because of, of uh, city design rules. You can't put things like bigger balconies anymore. You can't put things uh, like stone faces anymore. You have to have certain kinds of cladding now. There, there's a lot of these kinds of reasons that are there um, that causes the ugly housing. It's not that architects just don't know how to do it anymore. I mean, of course, there's lots of beautiful housing that is built in other cities, in Vancouver especially, nice towers, interesting concepts, interesting design. 
Um, and there, the same can happen in, in California. So you don't think this is, this is entirely on the architects? I, I mean, when I see a lot of the stuff that, like, that, that they come up with that, like, that, at least as far as I know, doesn't have the, the sort of regulatory barriers to doing something more aesthetic, um, it still looks like the, the the aesthetic they're going for is is sort of like almost deliberately offensive a lot of the time, um, and and I don't know I guess the like deliberate offensiveness is zeitgeist in architecture has possibly abated somewhat in recent decades, but it does still seem to be going. Yeah, I mean, of course it would help if um, proposed development was beautiful or generally conceived uh, with aesthetics in mind. Um, so that that is a concern, a legitimate concern, but it's so minor compared to the much more real concern, which is about sort of neighborhood character. Yeah, and- I, I think it's minor in again in retrospect, but as a source of uh, resistance, I think it's um, I think it's a real thing. At least I, I don't hear it talked about a lot, but I think like. I, when people do talk, like it does come up, it does come up, and I, uh, I, I suspect it's it's um, it's part of the calculus if, on if, the resistance. So, if there's anything I've taken away from this discussion and reading the article as well, it's that uh, there's currently no real feasible plan on the table for NIMBYs to have their concerns seriously met. Um, and I think that is a, is a bit concerning because they've had something like 40 years to, to build some kind of reasonable solution. Um, and we, we haven't really seen anything other than, um, sort of like obscurant politics through parking lot shenanigans, uh, zoning issues, you know, heritage buildings, laundromats, it's all been laundered, you know, it's all been laundered through other concerns. So the fact that we, and obviously I I don't think we've made a ton of progress here to a solution. I don't know if there, I don't know if there is a sane, reasonable, legal, moral one. I I, I don't. Well, I would like to see a future where intentional communities come back into, into the, into the, into the front of our sort of understanding of how we can build um, cities that are that are host to yeah. many people. So intentional communities is is a way that I would like sort of the urban housing political dynamic to to move towards. It would be interesting to potentially explore that. Maybe in a future piece, we could solicit something on that uh, because if there is a is a feasible proposal there that that people can feel comfortable with. Um, that would be a big breakthrough because we've, as I said, we've had about 30, 40 years of NIMBY resistance and, and no serious philosophical work done in that area aside from circuitous political moves at, at city council. And I want to see if the NIMBYs can honestly present a good steel manning of their more fundamental concerns, FIMBYs as well. Um, because right now, uh, it, it, to a certain extent, they've mostly accepted, uh, 
that there will be development, but they do want uh, public housing. And to a certain extent, they as well, through you know, street protests or, or whatever political action they engage in, um, again, circuitously restrict entrance into their community. But if we start out from the frame of intentional communities right, right, right from the get-go, can we make any progress there at all? We'll see. We'll see. I'd like to see someone uh, maybe submit something on this. This even gets on it. this even gets though into you know we're talking about housing a lot specifically here, but this is about the whole way that you even design cities or redesign cities. You know, um, we do a lot of work on on uh, global development in various countries, but there there's an argument to be made that in a lot of uh, established cities. Uh, perhaps you'll have to have parts of them redeveloped at sort of a larger scale. Uh, and this, you know, especially when it comes to things like transport, um, you go from car-based cities, maybe we, we want a more dense city, uh, but, but look how much land is taken up by roads. Well, isn't it easier at some point that we just actually tear up or, you know, demolish apart, tear up roads, redesign it so that basically most of these things are are transit like transit dense and then walkable um that's also though gonna then intensify opposition because now we are talking about a larger scale of remodeling so it's gonna get into built environment level stuff like that yeah i mean i you know just for myself speaking i would like more housing i would like more density uh, particularly because I do enjoy walking. You know, I don't, I don't need a car. I can walk to the grocery store. I can walk to just about everything I need and then take transit for the rest or, or Uber. Um, so just from my perspective, the, the densification, especially in, in San Francisco and, and, uh, other areas in the Bay, uh, it would be nice if we could make some progress there. Yeah, and but is it going to actually happen? I mean, we've talked a lot about like what should happen, but but like let's let's at some point get back to the analytic frame of, of sure. well, of course, I think happen. it will happen. Just just to um, take a holistic view, there's just so much free money on the table almost in the, in terms of how much wealth can be generated by increasing densities in um, attractive urban areas or neighborhoods nearing. Um, neighborhoods that are near employment centers, neighborhoods that are near transit centers, there's just so much money on the table there and the pressures on um, city governments will become more and more uh, as the years go by in terms of the, the, the need to increase their carrying capacity, I guess. So I think they will win. Uh, it, we will be entering a, a period with much higher densities in urban areas and the, the NIMBY resistance, the, the is really a, a gasp of a reactionary class um, just on the, the the final final days of its of its reign. So here's a speculative question. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, the possibility that uh, you have a centralization of of urban development policy occur. there's a there's a what's good for the goose is what's good for the gander situation here where, as every major city in America is having this debate in different ways, at some point, you know, on a federal level, on a national level, one has to ask, okay, so all of these, you know, powerful economic hubs, 
uh, that really are fundamental to the country, to American economic power and therefore political power, cultural power, um, are facing the same issue. Uh, that seems to set up a strong incentive for city development to become nationalized as an issue. Uh, and I can see ways where both the right and the left can do this, right? Because in a way, right, this um, a more development or market-based solution lends itself well to certain aspects of uh, the right and the coalitions that make it up. Um, on the other hand, those cities are actually uh, on the national level democratic-based voters a lot of the time. So, and in in the case of the the convulsions in that party, a lot of them even tend toward the the rising, the new left uh, with within that party. And so, there's different ways that uh, one can frame that debate. Um, so, you know, I, I can I would make that bold prediction that city development will become a national strategy issue. Uh, and in some circles, it already is, but on, on the stage even of popular politics and electoral politics. Yeah, I think the big interesting question here, like sort of uh, related to that is, and, and related to what we were saying earlier about just like the overwhelming amount of money on the table is, will this remain a reactive issue or will it become a proactive one? Like right now... It, you know, there is a crisis. And, and so the situation is a, a sort of sluggish and reluctant, uh, haphazard response to crisis. Um, and, and sort of the, the need becomes so overwhelming that even the incredibly rusty gears of California government are, are sort of starting to move and, and provide some ground on this. Um, that's sort of one story. Another story is that once that starts moving and once people have started really paying attention to this, you get a larger scope, more powerful kind of entrenched coalition uh, towards development that can go sort of much beyond solving the crisis towards um, sort of taking advantage of, of the potential upside of, of long-term development. And that's like looking more like uh, what Chinese cities, I, now I'm not going to say they're, they're run the best, but but the Chinese generally these days are, are much more proactive uh, than, than we're being on this issue. Like we're waiting for it to develop into a crisis uh, before anything is done at all. Um, and, and is that going to continue? Like I, I certainly think something's going to be done about the crisis, but but is is it is that it? Or, or is this going to somehow evolve into a more systemic, um, and sustained development imperative. So we've talked a lot, right, about n like grand narratives uh, and how they shape politics. And I think that city development, it's something that I see a lot of people who aren't even normally that interested in politics get into. And I think that um, when it comes to grand narratives, that kind of development is often very powerful as an image and as a, a crisis to tackle because it's very concrete, literally concrete in some cases, very visceral. It affects literally what you see every day. You know, if your city's quickly growing and expanding uh, and, and if you're benefiting from it, you feel like things are getting better around you and you're going to be very optimistic. You talk to people who are living in the Bay Area, you know, in, in the 2000s, right? A lot of that optimism is from just waking up every day in a city like that. 
On the other hand, if you're living in a city that's that's declining, you're going to be very pessimistic. Uh, I'd even look at, you know, post-war era, you know, what are the images that we get from the periods of American history in the 20th century uh, that are now considered kind of golden age type uh, uh, eras? It's, you know, you get these images of like builders building s skyscrapers in Manhattan uh, or the bridge builders uh, in, in California. Uh, and today, you know, as you're mentioning China, I, uh, an important part of their public branding and propaganda is this image of like new cities springing up from the landscape. Uh, yeah, even in Kazakhstan, we which we've covered, there. Astana served yeah. a role like this, right? So uh, I, I think that uh, is going to be a powerful political incentive for someone to take that banner up. There's nothing really like it. Yeah, so, so certainly there's a lot of upside uh, in, in like, if you actually could take up the banner of development and actually develop the muscle and the will and the, and, and the vision to actually carry that through. Sure. There's, there's an enormous amount of upside in actually developing it. What, what I'm sort of questioning is whether anyone is that powerful and farsighted today in American politics or whether like the machine is purely reactive and, and like actually structurally can't do anything proactive. Yeah, well, I, there's a bit of a catch for you here. I mean, we, we will, I think this is a case where yeah, it is reactive now. Um, you, you become proactive essentially by being the one to take the first step on making it a national grand narrative. Uh, it, it, you know, in a sense, yes, it will remain reactive until it's not. Um, well, until some you know coalition has a plan in place to to right if the if the yimbi coalition you know forges alliances across cities and is is trading uh you know political strategy um interacting with national parties right yeah for sure scott wiener was invited up to vancouver and that's how i uh, i met him uh, i think this was in the end of summer uh, he came up to Vancouver. He gave a speech at the library. Uh, there was a huge crowd, of course, tilted young, tilted tech, just as you would expect. But there was also political representatives from both the BC NDP, which is our Social Democrat Party. It's a governing party in BC. Uh, there was a junior minister there from that party. There was several uh, um, liberal party, which is our center-right party as well as national party uh, candidates as well. So Tamara Taggart was there. Uh, a First Nations uh, chief was also there. So yes, this Yimby thing is becoming internationalized and spreading into different cities. Her, uh, the, the founder of the movement, I guess, is uh, Sonia Trous, and she's from San Francisco. So she, she really got it off the ground, but Vancouver has a strong scene, strongly influenced by that, but also exporting it out to other cities who are really facing this problem yeah so that 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 is then right the prerequisite infrastructure for national politics the fact that it's international is even more interesting right um and to to take your point siavash in the article of you know the the rising power of the cities uh, or maybe the returning power of the cities um I, that's a global force we're talking about there now you can see national governments actually potentially strategizing uh, as allies on those these kinds of things. Yeah, I, I still can't distinguish that from the reactive uh, response. I would say it's proactive at the point where 
the the classes of the Yimbis are being used to develop an actual national strategy, uh, you know, that is shaping the growth. It, it, it's shaping the growth of cities that are upgrading, that are medium or smaller, and are now becoming a larger tier of city. Because now you're talking about actually shaping the building of, of the urban future. Yeah, like, I guess I guess the question is, like, will the rents actually go down? And when the rents actually go down, will they still be building stuff? And that's, that's like, an mm. interesting question for me. And I'm not sure. Like, like will... And I think that's, that's an important question. Will the rents actually go down? Yes. If you have enough building, the rents will go down. You yeah, yeah. Obviously, obviously, if you get enough building, you know, you flood the market with supply, uh, the rents go down. What I'm saying is... Like if if all of the the political force from this thing is like coming from from again this reactive response to an ongoing housing crisis, um, it might be that like yeah you start building some stuff but you're only really able to build enough to keep the rent stable at, at some ridiculously high level. Yeah, I mean, I I think that. I mean, obviously, you know, it's hard to see how you would have like a permanent, endless uh, going down of rents. Like at some point, theoretically, this has to bottom out. But I, I think that in political, well, in, in terms of political cycles, I would imagine that like a, a political victory looks something like a generation grows up in cities where that political vision is now just like the governing orthodoxy. And that generation, you know, that is the water they swim in, so to speak. Uh, it, I, I think in, in, in political cycles, shaping generations is kind of one of the yardsticks of major victory. Yeah, so when you, as Ash says, when you have a situation in the future, let's say 30 years in the future, where uh, people in a community find it outrageous that you have, I don't know, a family living in a one-bedroom or a family living in a two-bedroom even, they find it outrageous that people pay 40-50% of their uh, gross income in, in, in rent. They find it outrageous that there's a 1% vacancy. Once you get to that sort of level, where the people find it outrageous to, that these things exist, uh, then you've won. And th that's really what you want. And you're not going to get rents declining forever. The, the real point is that the rents have gone up so much that, that you have these productive classes even being priced out. You're not just, being pr you're not just pricing out uh, sort of seniors or low-income people or these kinds of types. You're pricing out uh, software developers and young families, people who are dual-income couples, uh, dual-income families and uh, professional couples. So if you can get rents to go down enough in real terms to make the city more affordable for these people... That is the political victory right there. Yeah, and it seems like ultimately, um, I mean, so, you know, we we steelman the, the, the NIMBY case pretty hard. If you're going to steelman the YIMBY case, it would probably be something like, you know, uh, we once had a situation uh, in, in most of the major Western countries where, you know, a, 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 the, the class of people that was like the productive base, a productive working family, could afford a place to live and basically felt like they had stability and that things would look up. Um, on the other hand, you you also had the these barriers that restricted that to certain groups of people. It seems like the Steelman Yimby vision is like you can have we can have that again, but but the cities this time you know it's more open and more hyper productive 
than it was even in that period. And so theoretically, you can get, um, you know, a, a, a state of things in terms of economic opportunity and economic productivity and what the city can achieve as, as a unit uh, that supersedes even those previous eras, which we now kind of look look back as golden ages on. Well, we're we're about an hour and twenty five minutes in, so I, I wanted to to field one last question to see Avash before we close out, and uh, that would be why why is land a scam? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so I, I coined a phrase, "land is a scam," uh, a while ago uh, after an experience I had on a cruise ship. So I, I went on a cruise ship with my family uh, in the uh, late October of 2016. And the experience was so wonderful. The quality of service, the quality of food. You get, of course, lodging because it's basically a hotel on the water. Um, it was so great in every way. There was a, a, a dance show, a music show, a ma magician. Every night, two shows at least. There's pools everywhere. There's hot, hot tubs. There's great food. It's just the it's a complete paradise. I, I joked to my parents that it was an early check into heaven, and the most amazing thing of it all was that it cost a hundred dollars per person per night. Now that sounds kind of expensive, but if you think of a regular vacation, like I went to San Francisco uh, visiting you guys a couple of weeks ago, and if you count the flight costs and hotels and such. A regular vacation costs about a hundred dollars a day too, and you're not getting endless steak and lobsters and shrimp. Um, so, so coming out of that vacation, I started thinking, why is the land not as great as the ocean? And part of the reason is that the cost structure on the ocean is actually very low because the workers on a cruise ship live on the cruise ship in the lower um, cabins. I guess they don't have to pay rent. And the fact that they're not paying rent means that they can get paid little, which means that the um, you can have a lot of workers doing a lot of work. Your productivity is high and your cost structure is low. On uh, on a cruise ship, a worker, let's say a server or a cook, has to make $400, $500 a month. But you know what happens with that $400, $500? It's completely saved. Whereas if that same worker or cook was on the land working in a regular restaurant, they would have to make $2,500, $3,500, $4,000 a month because 50% of that is is gone in rent, another 30% gone in taxes. And the other thing is on, on cruise ships, uh, they're usually registered in, in uh, Panama or some Bahamas islands in the Caribbean. So they have very low tax structures as well. And so on the land, you're just getting scammed because you're paying rent, you're paying taxes, your regulatory barriers are extremely high. So the result of that is that the quality of life is really low and the cost is high. I mean, I can easily tell you there's many, many people living in California, in Vancouver, spending way more than $100 a night in a regular life. That's only $3,000 a month. There's lots of people. People pay $2,500 in rent in, in some uh, cities in, in Canada and America. Why do they do this? They should just offshore themselves and go on the cruise ship. Um, so this is why I would say land is a scam because the cost structures on land are extremely high that they are almost punishing. It's almost an, an insult to go to a restaurant in the land and get low quality service and then pay $90 for one meal when you could pay $100 and get endless meals and hotel and entertainment every night.
So that's sort of where, where I come from with that phrase, land is a scam, is that the cost structures on the land are too high, and uh, certain regulatory barriers need to be removed from that, and the rent needs to come down. The rent needs to come down to make life better for people on the land. And then we take the city and we put it on the ocean, and that's the final step of the urban revolution. Yes. I mean, you don't have to actually put it on the ocean. There's plenty of land, too. We're just not using it. The, the, the key thing is, do you actually build the houses? <laughs> like well, a- uh, that is a good question. We should, we should meditate on the Sea of Ash cruise ship proposal. Uh, I'm not quite sure that I'm ready for it yet because I find the gaudy entertainment on cruise ships to be appallingly middle class. Uh, sorry, Sea of Ash. <laughs> hey, there's... <laughs> they are... Um, I support the middle class. Uh, they are uh, host of many uh, uh, libraries as well on cruise ships. So you can go there. You can spend an afternoon at the cafe that's also free. Uh, at the library that's also free, full of great books. There's uh, board games there. There's... It's just so yeah, good. I, I, have a, I have a quick follow-up question before we wrap this up. So if land is a scam... Should we tax it? Uh, yes. If we're going to get into the Georgism question, yes. Yes. I mean, rent, rent is already taxed. There's, there's like costs you just kind of have to pay, uh, because someone has the power to make you pay them. And those things generally are called taxes and rents are just private taxes. (laughs) All right. Uh, that was great. If we want to talk about Georgism, we're going to have to put it off to another episode. Sea of Ash, thanks for coming on this one. It was an absolute blast. And uh, we hope to have you on uh, future episodes to discuss more about housing politics, land, cruise ships, Georgism, etc. Uh, for everyone else tuning in, we'll see you next week. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. See you then.